Let's pray. Lord, as we come to study your word, your words to us, by which you rule us as your people, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Would you test the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts in the radiance of your purity, especially as we come now to discern the priorities we work by in our prayers. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. When you came in, you'll be given a piece of paper and inside there is an outline. Uh, You can make use of that uh, if you want to make notes uh, throughout the sermon. Uh, Like last week, uh, we are doing a topical sermon this week. It's not common for us to do that in SMAC. Normally we're working through one particular passage of scripture, but we're continuing our mini-series on prayer this morning. Uh, So to save us having to flick all over uh, the Bible as we go through, uh, all the verses are going to be up on the screen, apart from the verses that we had for our older New Testament reading. We're going to be spending a lot of our time in our New Testament reading in 2 Thessalonians, so when we come to that, that's the only passage you'll actually have to be physically looking at in your Bible. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. Now, how would you complete this sentence? You are what you... Eat, thank you, that was the first one on my mind, I don't know why, yep. You are what you eat, you are what you wear, you are what you own, you are what you know. Well, how about this one for us as Christians this morning? You are what you pray. You are what you pray. Robert Murray Machane was a Scottish minister based in Edinburgh back in the 18th century. He was a strong advocate of prayer. He was so concerned for the habit of prayer that he went down in history saying, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. What he meant by that was to understand what we really care about, what we truly treasure, what really drives us in life, we need to take a good look at what we pray. Because our prayers form a window into the concerns of our hearts. They reveal what is truly, well, truly treasuring, they reveal what is truly important to us. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Well, Brian took us through the the how and the why of prayer last week. We were reminded how prayer is an immense privilege that we have received from our Heavenly Father. We can now speak to him directly. It's made possible for us now because Jesus is our High Priest, the one who dealt with our sins, what was blocking us off from God, what was bringing his wrath against us, rather than enjoying relationship with him. Well, Jesus dealt with that at the cross in his love for us, that we might have real relationship with God now as his people. 
and be able to lay our request before him. We also looked at some of the hindrances, the common hindrances that often keep us from praying as we should, as God's people. And that talk's now on the website, and I strongly encourage you to go and download it if you weren't here last week. Uh, Do that this afternoon. But now we've come to focus on the what of prayer, our priorities in prayer. So we're going to be looking at several different types of prayers in the scriptures, and through them, hopefully we'll see God's priorities for our prayers, and we'll see how our priorities in what we pray actually stack up to his, that his priorities will be conforming what we are truly passionate about at his people. The first type of prayer we're going to look at is the prayer of penitence, praying to God with a humble heart. We've got this parable in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 18, verses 11 to 14. Let me read them, they're on the screen. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector stood far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus gives us two men in this little story. One who is a Pharisee, outwardly known in his community to be very religious, seen as a God-fearing and upstanding man in his local community. And the other, a tax collector, an embezzler, who extorted money from his own people in order to enrich his life and in order that the Romans might get paid the taxes that they demanded. And each man's prayers reveal the priorities and the attitudes of their hearts. The Pharisee's prayer is full of self-righteousness. He thanks God that he is so superior to other men, like this tax collector. But the tax collector, on the other hand, he just fears to even draw near to the place where that Pharisee is praying. He is so fearful, he won't even look up to heaven. He will just keep his eyes on the ground. He is a penitent man, despite his sin. He is realistic about his standing before God, knowing the kind of life that he has lived, knowing what kind of things he is guilty of, knowing that there is nothing that he, as a sinner, can bring to God that will make himself right with God. Anything on the basis that he has done. He can only rely on God's mercy. That is his prayer. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And yet this Pharisee, he is blind to his sin. In fact, he's blinded by it. His pride in thinking that he could please God on the basis of keeping a few rules on the basis of meeting his own moral standards. And yet even in this prayer itself, he breaks one of the commandments, doesn't he? He looks in contempt 
on this tax collector. Even though the law says you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Of course, he probably thought his neighbours were his fellow self-righteous Pharisee buddies, not this tax collector. And so it's this tax collector, having relied on God's mercy, who leaves justified, clean, before God. No different from us. We're all sinners. We all fail to live up to our own standards in life, let alone God's standards for us. We all fail to love him faithfully, with all our heart, mind and strength, and we all fail as a result to love one another, as we should as well. Our only means of forgiveness and approval we know by the gospel is by relying on the mercy that God has shown us in Jesus, whom he gave to die for us. And if we are Christian here today, if we are trusting in Jesus as our Saviour and Lord, we know we have received approval before God on the basis of what Christ has done. And yet we also know, if we're being honest with ourselves, that we still fail to live that life that he commands us and wants us to live. A life of faithfulness to him and a life of faithful, loving service to one another. We go back to our old master of sin on a daily basis, even though Jesus shed his own precious blood to free us from him. And so this first godly priority that I want us to look at in our prayer lives is the regular confession of our sin, just like this tax collector. Have a look at what John writes in his first letter, 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, the Pharisee in that earlier parable, he deceived himself, didn't he? In John's words, he was shown to not belong to the truth. He was a man apart from God, blinded to the reality of his sin and so living a lie. Blind to the fact that he was totally unworthy before God. And so that lie would lead him to hell. And yet the tax collector confesses, I'm a sinner. And so again, in John's words here, he was forgiven. He was cleansed of all his unrighteousness, not just the embezzling, but every other sin that he wasn't even aware of in his heart. You see, the danger, if we fail to make a habit of confessing our sins regularly, is that we, like that Pharisee, we become blind to it. We gradually take our sin a lot less seriously than we should. Uh, We start to think, oh, I'm not really that bad. We we start to foolishly compare ourselves to to other Christians who seem to be struggling at the time. Oh, I'm fine with God. They're doing, they're terrible. Look at me. Tell ourselves, I'm clearly better than him, than her, than them. No different from that Pharisee. You know, to the point that instead of repenting and asking God for forgiveness through Jesus, we just wallow in our sin and feel self-justified. We're deceived by it. It might be that it builds us up in pride, or we might just go the opposite way. That we feel loaded down by our sins. We feel incredibly incredibly guilty for dishonouring Jesus. But we just don't know what to do with our sin. 
we fall for that lie that, well, God couldn't possibly love me now because I went and did that sin. As if our standing before him ever depended on our personal performance. Or maybe we hesitate to confess our sins regularly as Christians because we think that somehow it implies a lack of faith in Jesus and what he did by dying on the cross for us. We feel that every time I repent, I say, Lord, I'm so sorry for my sins, please forgive me. I'm somehow cheapening that sacrifice that he gave of dying for our sins. We're somehow saying, I don't really feel secure in Christ. I've got to, be, I've got to keep on, keep on repenting. And so we decide to make a habit of, oh, I'm not going to repent anymore. I mean, hasn't Jesus already forgiven us? So we hesitate to repent. And what becomes one decision becomes a habit. And what becomes that habit becomes our character. To the point that we are hardened by our sin. Well, friends, we must always remember that God does fully love us as we trust in Jesus. As he looks on us, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son who died for us at Calvary. We are secure in him. But we mustn't think that we are incapable of displeasing God by our sin now, even as he has saved us to be his people. Even after we've been redeemed by Jesus, our sin continues to be offensive to God and that does have an effect on our walk with him. Let me just remind you of some verses we read in our Old Testament reading from Psalm 32. David writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. and My strength was dried up as by the heat of supper. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will, trans- I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, unconfessed sin in our lives that we know about is a dangerous thing. It makes us spiritually dry, lethargic. We feel distant from God. So it's right that we make a regular habit of confessing our sins. Asking for forgiveness in Jesus' name. That's one way in which we live out the gospel as Christians. Remembering and so confessing and asking for forgiveness on the basis of what he has done. That we might have a clear and clean conscience before God. So that's penitence. Praying with a humble heart. Let's move on to thanksgiving. I think this is one of the most common weaknesses uh, that we're guilty of as Christians. It's something I know I'm guilty of. My uh, lack of concern to give thanks so often. We think it's partly to do with the culture that we live in as well that affects us more than we realise. We live in an action-orientated culture, don't we? We're always looking to the next thing. I can go down to the Mac store at Mid Valley and I can pick up an iPad 2 and by the time I've got home I can go online and they'll be screaming about the iPad 3 and everything that will come on that one. That should have been on the iPad 2 in the first place but we're not going to go there. And in the midst of our busy schedules we struggle to take time to reflect and just give thanks to God for all that he has granted to us. Friends, that's a real shame because there are 
so much of the prayer that we read of in Scripture is thanks and praise to God. The Psalms are full of praise to him for his mercy and faithfulness to us as his people. Paul's letters in nearly every case start with a word of thanksgiving to God for the believers he is writing to. And that just makes sense. Because our lives now as Christians are to be one continuous act of worship in thanks to God for what he has done and what he is doing through his gospel. And yet for myself I know I can be so slow just to give thanks to him both for salvation in Christ every day and all the other blessings that we receive from him as our Heavenly Father. Now, Thanksgiving should mark us out as Christians. But what about our attitude in Thanksgiving as we give thanks for our prayers? Does the attitude of our Thanksgiving have its foundation in the Gospel that God has so mercifully saved us as his people? Here's something I've caught myself doing quite often. I'll wake up one morning. I've had a great sleep. Uh, The dog has not woken me up once in the night, for which I'm very thankful. It's great weather outside. It's cloudy, it's warm and dry, but it's not too hot. It's just right. There's no rain. Traffic is light on Jonathan Razak. No one cuts me. Makes a nice change. I get into the office and Andrew has brewed me a pot of my favourite coffee already. All my appointments, they go really well that day. People arrive on time. They're in a cheerful mood. They're a delight to be with. They're a delight to serve. I managed to get my work done efficiently. Get more done that day than I had planned. The working day is, is fantastic. I head home. I have a great dinner with Melissa. She's had a great day. We have a great conversation. We relax, watch a film together. And so before I go to sleep that night, before I go to bed, uh, I'll get down on my knees and I pray something like this to God. Oh, Father, you are so majestic and loving and compassionate. Your loving care is higher than the tallest mountains. Thank you for the joy and privilege of serving the gospel, which you have made possible according to the divine riches of your grace that you set forth in Christ before the ages began. Praise to you forever and ever so such a great day you are such an awesome God Amen and I go to bed I just put my head on my pillow big smile and I go to sleep next day it's raining outside I've got a headache because the dog woke me up three times I get into the car and the traffic is beyond bad a bike clips my side mirror I get in late we've run out of coffee All my appointments are late. I get half of what I planned to get done, done that day. I head home, roadworks on Jalantun Razak. My wife had an equally bad day. Her patients were not nice. No food in the fridge. Domino's takes two hours to arrive, and so I have to eat cold cardboard pizza. I get ready for bed. I sit down, and I pray. Dear God, Thanks for today. Please help me to sleep well. Keep the dog at bay. Good night. And that's it. How dare we? 
how dare we behave in that manner? When we have a really bad day, we've no less reason to give thanks to God than on our very best day. Because his worthiness to be praised will never change. Because the gospel will never change. That God has not only given us life, but he has granted us forgiveness for our sins and eternal life by giving his one and only son to die on the cross and take the full punishment for all the ways in which we've offended him, rescued us from the depths of hell and seated us in the heavenly realms, in the presence of Christ himself. And that love will never change. And so Paul can write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We can do that as Christians because the gospel is true. That God has demonstrated his love once for all to us in the cross. And so now we have the promise that just as he has saved us in Christ, not only that, but now he promises to work in every circumstance, pleasant and painful, to conform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, which is better by far. And Paul knew that. He knew God wasn't in his life to serve his needs. No, rather, Paul had been given new life so that he could worship God and enjoy him in every circumstance. That's what Paul expressed through his prayers, the reality of the gospel. Having been falsely accused, beaten severely and thrown into a foul prison cell, we read on the occasion in Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They knew that God had a good purpose in the midst of their sufferings. They knew that he alone was still worthy of their praise and thanksgiving. And through that situation, God worked to bring about the church of Philippi. A church that would support Paul in his gospel ministry, both in that region and the surrounding regions for years to come. Friends, our thanksgiving to God must not change like the weather. We will always be in debt for saving us in Christ. He alone will always be worthy of our thanksgiving and praise, whatever we are enduring. And yet, what about our priorities in thanksgiving? We've looked at the importance of making it a habit. We've looked at the attitude we're to have in our thanks. But what are we to actually give thanks for? Well, what do we normally give thanks for? What are the kind of things you've been giving thanks for over the past week? We say grace at meals. We thank God for our food. Uh, We might give thanks for the material blessings that we receive from him when the mortgage that we've applied for comes through, when we turn the key on our brand new car and it roars into life for the first time and we just say a little prayer of thanks to God for that. We may sigh a great relief. We may say, thank you, Lord, that that driver didn't hit me might utter a prayer of sincere and fervent thanks when we recover from illness. We might actually offer a brief thanksgiving when we hear that someone who we know 
has put their trust in Jesus. But, friends, so often our thanksgiving is tied so tightly to the material well-being and comfort of our lives in the here and now. And, friends, again, what we most frequently give thanks for, that reveals what we value most highly. There's a common theme in Paul's thanksgiving prayers. Nearly always they have an eternal scope. An eternal scope. He gives thanks for the things that will truly last. Flick open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we start to look at this prayer. 2 Thessalonians 1, and we're just going to look at verses 3 and 4 to start with. See what Paul gives thanks for here. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as this is right, because, number one, your faith is growing abundantly. Number two, the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your, number three, steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, friends, there is nothing wrong with giving thanks for good health and for the comforts that we receive from God as unwarranted blessings. We can give thanks for those things. But we see here that Paul often puts a different priority on our hearts. He gives thanks that the church are standing firm in the gospel, despite severe opposition, despite very uncomfortable times. He gives thanks that their faith in Jesus is growing. He knows that because they are loving one another in a Christ-like way. And why does Paul focus on these things? Well, because those are the things that are truly important for us as Christians. That our faith in Christ grows more and more in our love and knowledge of him. That we stand firm by the gospel. That we grow in endurance in hard times. That we grow in godly character. Uh, when was the last time we gave thanks for the signs of spiritual growth that we see here at SMAC? For the signs of spiritual growth that we see in our friends? and the members of our growth group. Friends, I'm I'm so encouraged to see the ways in which I see that here at SMAC, as I see people just loving and serving one another faithfully out of a love for Christ. And yet I am so slow, so often during the week, to give thanks to God for it. Even though it is his work, and it is something that will last for so much longer than the temporal things of this world. Paul's focus is rarely limited to the here and now. He prizes what's important in the long run. Having just written about his own sufferings in ministry, see, see what he says, see where the emphasis is as he writes these verses, 2 Corinthians 4.16 onwards, on the screen. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self, his physical body, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. We're going to continue this theme of eternal priorities in our prayers as we move on to our next heading as we look at petitions what we ask God for. Because just as with thanksgiving, what we ask God for reveals again the real priorities 
of our hearts in the here and now. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Well, before we look at Paul's petitions for the Thessalonians, let me just give you a bit of background to this letter, to this church. Paul had arrived in Thessalonica during his second missionary journey. He had started by preaching to the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus was Saviour and Lord, and wonderfully, some believed, and yet many didn't. Many of them became very jealous of Paul, of the effectiveness of the message he was preaching, and of all the attention he seemed to be getting as a result. And so they stir up a mob in that city and they set it in an uproar. And when they went with this mob to to beat up Paul, they go to the house where they know he's staying and they can't find him. And so they drag out his host, Jason, and they beat him instead. They bring false charges against him. Jason's eventually released and Paul and Silas said, go, flee, run for your life. And so they leave the very night that city behind. Well, for Thessalonica, it was a persecution hotspot for Christians. And that opposition was continuing when Paul wrote this letter to them. Have a look again in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring very real still at the time. So in the light of this really hard time, what does Paul pray for them? Well, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God would remove every persecution and every hardship that you're facing at this troubling time, that you'd be free to live in peace and comfort, that your house that got smashed up by that mob last week would be restored and... Oh, no, wait. No, that's not what he prays, is it? Let's try that again. Verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. That's what Paul prayed for them while they were getting beaten up on a daily basis for their faith. His immediate reaction was not, God, take all that hardship away. Nothing wrong with praying against persecutions for the church today. We do that at SMAC on a regular basis. But Paul knows that there was still a greater priority in his petitions for that church. I remember hearing about a church prayer meeting in the US that caused quite a stir. The group had started praying for fellow members in the church that weren't feeling well at the time and there was one rather severe case. They were told about one lady who was dying of cancer. She wasn't present at the meeting And so the group, sitting in a circle, they took an entire turn to pray for her. One prayed, Lord, remove that cancer. The next prayed, Lord, relieve this burden of suffering. Restore her, we pray. And the prayers went on like that from person to person until it came to one lady who happened to be the wife of Don Carson. And she prayed something along these lines. Lord, we do pray that in your mercy you would relieve this woman of her suffering. We pray that if it is your will, you would heal her. But if not, please help her to die well. And the looks that she got from that prayer group for praying that prayer were ones of scorn, disgust, 
unbelief. And yet I think that was actually a very helpful thing for her to pray. Not only for that woman in her suffering, but also for the group, because that prayer ministered to them about priorities for us as Christians. She realised, as Paul shows us here, that there are greater priorities than our physical welfare in this life as Christians. For that woman dying of cancer, her greatest need was for her as a Christian to continue rejoicing in the promise of eternal life that she had in Jesus in her darkest hours. That, friends, was the number one priority whether she was cured of cancer or not, her unwavering faith in Jesus would determine her eternity. I wonder how often do we allow the eternal realities of the gospel to shape what we pray for? Do, we, do our prayers resound with the idea that this life is all that we have? As if our every stake is bound up in the here and the now, in our current comfort? Well, Paul prays that the Thessalonians would live lives worthy of their calling. That every work of faith that they seek to do in the midst of those trials and those persecutions would be empowered by God because although he is concerned for their physical well-being, he is not primarily concerned for their physical well-being. No, his primary concern is their eternal well-being. Here he finishes in verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, one day these Thessalonians would stand before God's throne and having trusted in Jesus to the end, they will be declared justified, friends with God and welcomed into his eternal kingdom. And that trust will be proved genuine because they lived lives worthy of their calling in a way that wouldn't have even been possible if they had never faced those trials in the first place. By persevering through them, they became more and more like the Saviour, like Jesus, whom God wanted them to become. God's chief priority for us is that we become more like Jesus in every way. And that includes sharing in his sufferings, that we might grow in his character, that we might in some small way as his people grow more in his patience, his meekness, his sacrificial love for the enemies that persecuted him. And yet if the trials were just gone in an instant, that opportunity to honour the gospel to honour him and to grow in Christ-likeness would just disappear. See what the goal of Paul's prayer is in verse 12? So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Friends, if we are Christian here today, our lives are not our own anymore. They belong to Jesus because he purchased them by his own Precious blood, he freed us from that old master of sin that we might take a new master in him. And we look forward to the day when we will be glorified in him. We will receive an imperishable body like his that is not subject to decay and frustration that we experience now. 
our sin will be removed. We'll live in perfect peace, in harmony with him and one another. And so in the meantime, our number one goal is to become more like him. And one way in which God will do that is by training us in patience, endurance and character as we face hard times. Brother Yun, I don't know if you've read his book, The Heavenly Man, uh, he writes in his book how he responded to uh, someone who asked him, how should we pray for you and for the church in China as you face persecution every day? And these were his words as a man who was facing severe persecution for the gospel. He replied, do not pray for the persecution to stop. We should not pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Brother Yun wrote that because he, like Paul, prioritised the eternal above the temporal. I wonder if we're doing that in our prayers for ourselves and for one another and for the church abroad. We're praying that we and our growth group all of us as a church will be growing more like Christ and that is the number one goal. Just flick over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's on the screen as well, but we're going to spend a little bit of time here, so it might be helpful if you have a look at it. Just want to, I just want you to see how Paul has these same eternal concerns in mind as he urges the church to pray for all people, especially world leaders. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, our nation's leaders are to be amongst those who we pray for regularly, no matter what we think of them. Because God has given them the responsibility to promote peace and justice in this land. But what is Paul's goal as he promotes us in that prayer? It's not ultimately that we live peaceful, unhindered lives in every way. That's a good thing, but that's not the ultimate goal. It's so that all kinds of people, in verse 4, come to a knowledge of the truth. As we are able to live peaceful, quiet lives, they give us more opportunity to share the gospel without constraint. So that Jesus will be glorified as more and more people come to repentance and faith in him. Paul still has an eternal priority in mind. Of course, it's right that we pray for the safety and security of the Japanese when they're hit by a tsunami or when they're coming close to a nuclear meltdown. That's right. It's right that we pray for peace and justice to be promoted throughout our land. It's right that we pray for the sick and the suffering that they might be relieved of their burdens. All those things are good things to pray for. But there is a greater goal that often we fail to see. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, chiefly through the promotion of his gospel. Praying for our friends, whether they are well or sick, to receive Jesus as their Lord. 
praying for one another, whether we are well or sick, to remain with Jesus as our Lord, so that both body and soul, both that which is temporal and that which is eternal, will be secure to the glory of God's name. Let's just take a moment to think about our motives as we petition God in what we ask of him in prayer. We're warned by James to be mindful of our motives as we pray, of what's going on in our hearts. James 4 verse 6, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Friends, we can pray seemingly good, godly prayers with very evil motives. Here's an example. Lord, please help my kids to pass their exams at school seems like a a healthy prayer. I imagine there might be some of us, at least in the past year, who have actually prayed that prayer, driven by a godly parental love for them. But what if we dig a bit deeper? What about looking at the concern that's actually fueling that prayer for our children? Is it because we want our children to do well, to succeed, to have good opportunities, that they might provide for their families and be responsible in that way before God? Or is it because we're concerned about our own reputation? We want to look good in front of other parents as they are urging their children to do well, to bring honour to their name. We want to boast about our children and their achievements under our great leadership. Wow, that's a great parent. Look how their kids did. Maybe that's what's fueling our prayers. We can use that case study to assess prayers for our own achievements, whether at college, whether at work, whether we're praying for that promotion. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We have worldly, selfish motives, even in the good things that we pray for at times. And yet, what is God's number one priority? That we grow in the likeness of Christ, who sought his Father's glory above everything else, even to the point of giving his own life. And friends, we often pray with mixed motives, part loving and godly and part sinful. We need to ask God to change our hearts as we read, as we meditate upon his word, that our hearts, as well as the way we express our hearts in our prayers, would truly honour him. Can't expect God to be answering our prayers when they are rooted in sinful self-sufficiency. Well, finally, a quick note on practice. We're just going to finish on this practical note. What can we do tomorrow... And in this coming week, to promote ourselves in faithful prayer. Here are just a few tips. Number one, read the Word. Read God's Word regularly. That's what we've been doing today to inform us about what God's priorities are for our prayer lives. The more we consume God's Word, and the more God's Word changes our hearts so we become more like it, the more our prayers will reflect His will, as it should. So read the Word. Secondly, keep a prayer diary. If your memory is anything like mine, you'll need to keep a prayer diary. Very hard to often call to mind when we're in that point of praying. We're about to sit down to actually call to mind all those things that we've wanted to pray for for the past week without keeping any record, okay? You don't have to, but I recommend it. 
Thirdly, stay in touch with the world. Stay in touch with the world in which we live. Read a paper, flick on the news, go online, but stay in touch with what is going on in our world. It's impossible to pray into situations that we know nothing about. So stay in touch. And finally, I encourage all of us to come to the central prayer meeting for the focus of our prayers here as a church for one another, as we serve the gospel, as we serve one another in love. Because for those of us who haven't been to the central prayer meeting yet, it's an opportunity to actually hear a briefing on what we are doing as a church in order to seek to promote the gospel and serve Christ as a community together. Okay? I really encourage you, it will be noticed every uh, in the coming weeks for when it is coming up. Please do make a point of coming after Smack 2 in Sunday evening to pray with fellow brothers and sisters and to hear about the real concerns that we have as a church that need to be prayed for. Because it is God ultimately who will grant the growth. Well, in conclusion, as we pray, let's be humble. Let's confess our sin regularly and ask God to help us see our sin more clearly that we might live with a clear conscience before him. As we pray, let's be thankful, constantly remembering the debt of love we always owe, no matter what happens, that's been paid for us by Christ at Calvary. As we pray, let's be faithful in prioritising that which God prioritises in his words. The eternal above the temporal. Praying for our daily needs, yes, of course, but always having an eye on that which will last. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the awesome privilege of prayer that we, in and of ourselves as sinners, are so unworthy of. We thank you that in loving us so greatly by giving your one and only Son to die in our place on that cross, we now have access to you. Lord, pray that you would help us as your people today to reflect your priorities for us and for your world in our prayers, in the way we pray and in what we pray. Help each of us to keep in mind that which you want to take, that you want us to take from your word this morning and to live it out in faithful obedience as we delight in you to the glory of your name. Amen.